Today we're going to be um, continuing the teaching series we started a couple of weeks ago, and if you remember, we're talking about the marks of a successful, great church, a church that's vital, that's healthy, and we're learning from the New Testament book of Acts and the first century church. And two weeks ago, we talked about things like worship and uh, our reliance on the Word of God. Uh, Last week, we talked about prayer. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to be talking about generosity, but it's from a different perspective of the early church. And I want you to do um, one thing for me in preparation for this message this morning, and that is somewhere around your person, whether it's in your purse or in your pocket, if you have a set of keys that came with you or brought you to church today, um, make sure you know where those are because you're going to need them later in the service. And also, if you have a watch on or other timepiece, maybe it's a pocket watch, maybe you use your cell phone for your timepiece, keep that handy because you're going to need both of those things uh, for later in today's service. So now that I've piqued your curiosity, we'll leave, let it go at that until later. So uh, let's pray together as we begin this day to worship. Steadfast God, our world, our world is ever turning, ever changing sometimes peaceful, sometimes chaotic. But what we know today, uh, we did not always know, and what comes tomorrow may be a complete surprise to us. So help us to be open to the movement of your Spirit in our lives and in our world. Let our hearts be open to love, to, uh, to um, oh, let our minds be open to change, and may we ourselves be open to welcoming others into your church and here to your table because you are the one who welcomes us. Help us not to look back in fear, but look forward always with hope, knowing that you have caused the world to turn, our planet to revolve around the sun, our solar system to move around the galaxy, and you are always calling us to a new place, to a new time, to a new point of view. So may we be open as your people, and may be truly open to the one who is both our, our always our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this teaching series, Plug Into the Power, we have been examining the incredible dynamic that enabled the first century church to reach so many people so quickly. As I noted in the first message a couple of weeks ago, Uh, The first century Christians had none of the advantages that we consider so necessary today. They had no big buildings, no choirs, no organs, pianos, praise bands. They had no pews. They had no Sunday school rooms, parking lots, church gyms. They weren't supported by Christian television or radio stations, bookstores, Christian colleges or seminaries. Nevertheless, they prospered And in the early years, the church grew explosively. Now, our text today uh, offers a fascinating peek inside the day-to-day life of the early church. So I want to begin with taking a quick look at the text and then a simple outline uh, as our guide for the morning. The text in uh, Acts chapter 4 says, All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. 
because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field that he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Well, there are several key learnings in this passage. First of all, it says that all the believers were united in heart and mind. This simple statement tells us that the believers shared a deep inner bond with each other that joined them spiritually and emotionally. They were of one heart and one soul. Secondly, they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. They didn't claim that their possessions were their own. They shared what they had. In the early church, if you had a need and I had something that would meet that need, what was mine is yours. And what was yours was mine if I truly needed it. Third, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. The disciples were able to preach with power and God blessed their preaching, giving them favor with a lot of people. And then fourth, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, this particular uh, verse talks about three groups. There were the rich who were defined as people who owned anything. You were rich if you owned land or houses or almost anything. There were the apostles who were the designated spiritual leaders and then there was the needy, defined as those who were too poor to own houses or lands or other assets. Now, when the rich saw that certain believers had needs, they voluntarily sold some of their assets, whether that was land or houses or whatever, and they brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles, and the, the apostles distributed it to the various needy believers in the congregation. It was a simple plan that ensured that there would be no poverty in the life of the local church. Now fifth, for instance, the scripture says, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, son of, means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Now Barnabas later became an associate of the apostle Paul. And he is here introduced as a Levite, one of the spiritual leaders of the nation, a follower of Jesus Christ, and we know his conversion was genuine because it tells us that he began contributing out of his own resources to meet the needs of the poor in the Jerusalem church. So that's the outline with a little bit of commentary, but I, as I think about this passage, there's one question that keeps coming to my mind over and over again, and it's this. What made these people act this way? What made these first century Christians act this way? It is not natural to do what they did. Everything the world teaches us moves us in the opposite direction. But the very essence of sin is to go our own way and do our own thing, isn't it? Is it not what caused Lucifer to rebel against the Most High God and be cast out of heaven. Isaiah uh, chapter 14 talks about that. You see, there is nothing more natural or more normal 
than for us to say, this is mine. Keep your hands off of it. Left to itself, the heart always turns to selfishness. That's why this popular advice that's prevalent in the culture today that says, just follow your heart, just follow your own heart, is really deadly advice because the Bible in Jeremiah 17.9 pictures the heart as deceitful and darkened and the source of evil within us. And apart from God's grace, following our heart always leads us into sin. Isaiah 53.6 reminds us that we're like a bunch of sheep that have gone astray. Gone astray from God, and each of us have turned to our own way. Now you can picture this flock of sheep scattered on a hillside, and every one of them's doing their own thing, following their own path. And if one sheep is hurt or cornered by a wolf, that's too bad because it's all it's it's every sheep for themselves. But the scripture says we're a lot like that because self-centeredness is our default position. There is nothing in us that by nature uh, would cause us to do what the early church did. So why did they do it? Recall for a moment the time when a rich young man visited Jesus and he asked what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus replied that he should keep the commandments. And this was a serious young man and he said, which ones? And Jesus listed several of the commandments, and he included the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And this young man began to feel pretty good about himself because he had kept all of these commandments since the time he was young. And then he asked the next question, is there anything else? And here's the answer Jesus gave, and it's in Matthew 19. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come and follow me. Now every time I read that verse, it seems like in this passage we have the right question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But we have the wrong answer. I doubt that any of us would have given that answer that Jesus gave to this young man. If you were to ask me, today, how to inherit eternal life, I probably would say something about accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then I would probably quote a scripture or two uh, to you. But look at the verbs that Jesus uses in this passage, in this response. Five verbs. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Now, we are pretty happy with the last two, aren't we? We're we're okay with come and follow. But I'm not so sure of what we do with the first three. We're not comfortable with connecting, following Jesus, with selling our worldly goods and giving the money to the poor. That seems pretty radical. Let's take a quick look at Luke chapter 12, which is in part a repeat of Matthew chapter 6, which is the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 12, there's a wonderful promise of Jesus, and he says, So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now, among other things, this is a promise where God is committing himself to provide for all of our needs all of the time. As citizens of the kingdom, we can rely on God to put heaven at our disposal. But before you start celebrating too much, read the next verse. Jesus says, 
sell your possessions and give to those in need. Ouch. There it is again. Sell what you have and give the money to the poor. What does all that mean? Well, I think that Jesus is teaching us that there is an intimate connection between our possessions and the way we treat other people and our relationship with God. That's not a comfortable thought for many people because we prefer to a compartmentalized faith where we have our possessions but we don't really have to worry about anybody else and still we can be in good standing with God. Jesus seems to be saying that it doesn't work that way. And here's the connection. This will store up treasure for you in heaven and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Now, I mentioned Matthew 19 and Luke 12 because I think these passages go a long way in helping us to understand Acts chapter 4. Evidently, the first century Christians took these words of Jesus not only seriously, but literally. That's why they did what they did. As we return to the text today, notice that Luke in, in Acts 4 twice uses the same expression to describe how the actual giving was done. In verse 35 and again in verse 37, we're told that the gifts were given to the apostles. And it says they were laid at the feet of the apostles. This whole idea of giving gifts in this way seems pretty foreign to us in our culture. For one thing, it was a very public offering which makes most of us more than a little uncomfortable. There's no getting out of making a contribution. There was no secret giving. If you gave or if you didn't, everybody was going to know about it. The idea of giving their gifts to the apostles suggests several things. First, it tells us that the people had confidence in the apostles' leadership. They had complete confidence that the apostles would handle the money correctly. Secondly, it tells us that there was a great sensitivity to the needs of other people. The rich people made their offerings from time to time as specific needs arose. And thirdly, it tells us that there was genuine sacrifice for the sake of other people. They sold possessions, whether that be land or houses, other things, and brought the money and gave it to the apostles. And then four, it tells us that there was personal involvement. They sold what they owned personally, brought the money to the apostles and let them distribute it. Now I find it fascinating that in nearly all the comments I read on this passage noted that we are under no obligation to follow this passage literally. Some commentators even suggest that the early church made a mistake to practice the communal sharing of personal resources. But you know what? I don't see evidence of that in this text. And while I agree that what happened in Jerusalem is not a binding pattern for all time, the underlying principle remains for us today. Sometimes we use all kinds of excuses to weasel out of the true meaning of this biblical text. We don't have to do what they did the way they did it, but I would suggest that we do have to find a way, our ways to do what they did. The application varies from church to church and maybe from person to person, but the principle remains the same. And as we stand back and look at this passage as a whole, let me suggest four implications that we need to think about. First of all, true unity 
is a central mark of God's work in a local church. I don't think I would have said that 35 years ago. I was working with a pastor in those days who was more concerned about the rich and the powerful in the congregation than anybody else. And while those outward things are important sometimes, they don't go to the heart of what the church is called to be. In recent years, I've come to see that unity is a precious gift from God. And in a world, in this world, it is so unusual to find a group of people who truly love each other and care about each other and have made a commitment to work together and stay together for the long haul. And when you find that kind of love in the local church, it comes from God. Secondly, unity is made visible by the way we treat each other. In Francis Schaeffer's little book, The Mark of a Christian, he makes a most persuasive argument in favor of visible love in the body of Christ. And he says, this is a mark that unbelievers can recognize. They recognize love when they see it, even if they don't understand all of our complicated doctrines. In the first century church, they didn't just talk about unity. They practiced it at a deep level where they shared their personal possessions. Now third, the world responds when our message is accompanied by visible love. That, I think, explains verse 33. It is precisely because there was such a deep and visible unity that the apostles experienced great power in their preaching. Preaching never takes place in a vacuum. I read the story about how in the early days of his ministry, Billy Graham went to Altoona, Pennsylvania, my old stomping grounds on the outskirts of Pittsburgh, for a crusade. And unfortunately, there was so much dissension among the churches that the crusade was a failure. And Dr. Graham then decided that he would never, ever go to a city again unless they had the united support of the Christian community. See, when Christians love each other in a visible way, the world takes notice, and it is only then that they will hear the message. Then the fourth uh, point is sharing with the needy is a primary sign of God's grace at work. You know, I think this is the central truth of our text this morning. The first Christians considered it a scandal that some of their people lived in poverty. And they determined to do whatever it took, whatever it took to help the less fortunate brothers and sisters and certainly fulfilled Jesus' command that he gave to the rich young ruler and his admonition to go sell what you had and give it to the poor. I love the way Gene Peterson translates part of verse 32 in the message translation. He said, no one says, no one said, this is mine, you can't have it. That was not spoken in the early church. And I realize this is contrary to the way that we think about our possessions today. We all like to have some things that we consider ours, ours alone. Even the most generous people among us struggle with some degree with this principle. So how, did, had, how, how had such a great transformation in values taken place here in the first century church? And I think the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ is what makes all the difference. When the gospel enters a community, that community changes forever. When the gospel penetrates a local church, the people inside the church begin to look at what they have in a new light. When we begin to share with each other, not out of law, not out of duty, 
because someone tells us we have to, but because our hearts respond to, are responding to the grace of God, things change. So what is it that I'd like for you to take away from this teaching this morning? I want you to consider three statements. First one is this. We must preach the gospel because the gospel alone has life-changing power. This is always the place to begin when, and there's no substitute for the straightforward declaration of the truth of God. Romans 1.16 reminds us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We must tell the world that the Son of God died on the cross and rose from the dead. We must announce what God has done and invite people to come and repent and believe the gospel. No other message has the power to transform selfish hearts into channels of blessing for other people. Secondly, we must pray to be changed by the gospel that we preach. As we read the Bible and talk with other people, we must pray that our words will not only penetrate their hearts, but penetrate our own selfishness and transform us. And until we are changed, we cannot expect that our words or actions are going to change anybody else. So we need to remember that true sharing begins with the people closest to us, in the local church, at home, our friends, our acquaintances, and with all the people that God puts on our path in life. And then third, we must demonstrate the change that God has worked in our lives by the way we handle our possessions. You know, it's not easy to change the way we look at what we think and, or what we like to think of as ours. Remember the rich young fool back in Luke chapter 12? This is the guy that wanted, had so much coming in, he just decided that instead of giving it away, he would build bigger and bigger and bigger buildings, store more stuff. Little did he know that he would meet God that very night. And then who was going to get all this stuff that he was storing? You see, the lesson in that that Jesus was trying to teach us is that we are fools if we think that we own anything. We say, this is my car. This is my house. These are my children. This is my wife. This is my business. These are my investments. As if we actually own them. We don't own anything. Never have, never will. And here's the proof. When we die, somebody else is going to get our car and our money and our job and our house. We don't own our children. We don't own our spouse. Our life isn't even our own. How much better to look at all that we have as being loaned to us by God, and we are at most temporary custodians of all that we have. And even our life is a gift, one that God can recall at any moment. We come into this world with nothing, we will leave this world with nothing, and in between we have temporary custody of a few things. And someday we will stand before God and we will give an account of what we have done with what we've been given while we lived on this earth. In the first century church, as the good news began to spread, those who were not part of the church, the pagan population, 
said of these early Christians, look at these folks. Look how they love each other. You see, that kind of deep love is based on something deeper than friendship. We can differ on many things, but it is critical that we agree on Jesus. Any church can have unity if we truly agree on Jesus. That's what verse 32 means when it talks about all the believers, the whole multitude of believers. The early church united around a shared commitment to Jesus Christ, and everything else in this passage flowed from that. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Do you really believe in Jesus? And I don't mean in a theoretical sense. I don't mean even in a saving faith sense. I wonder if we really believe what Jesus said in Luke 12. I I really want to believe that God has already, do we really believe that God has already given us the kingdom? Do we believe that God is fully committed to meeting all of our needs all of the time if we just dare to be generous, even recklessly generous from the world's point of view. You see, we own nothing. Everything that we have is on loan to us by God. So what are we doing with what God has loaned to us? I'd like you to do something for me, and I'm going to get back to the keys and to the watch. If you have a watch on today or keys in your pocket, Take them off, hold them in your hand. I want you to do what you have to do to just, I want you to see both of those things or whatever you got, okay? You can't check Facebook on your phone. Just look at the time right now, okay? Consider what your watch and these keys represent. Your watch keeps track of time, and it measures the passing of your life. One day, time will stop for each of us because our life is a temporary gift from God. So the question is, what are we doing with the time that we have been given? Now, you've probably got keys on your key ring that maybe to your home, to your office, to your car, whatever. But these keys represent our most personal possessions, material possessions. But you know what? One day we're going to surrender control of all of those to someone else. What are you doing with the earthly treasure that God has entrusted to you? Do you really, really believe in Jesus? And if you do, it will change the way you view your time and your possessions. See, so many of us waste our years trying to hold on to what we can't keep. May God help us to hold lightly the things of this world. See, none of us are going to live forever. The only choice we get is to do is what we do with what we have been given. And that choice will matter for eternity. Everything else is going to pass away. Let's pray. God help us to choose wisely so that we may be glad and not ashamed on that day when we stand before you. Amen.